Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, Roland Amundsen, Hello, first good evening, to reach and welcome to Seascapes. And his relationship with Ernest Shackleton. And Getting Hooked, an event in Mayo to introduce women to angling. Next weekend, the Shackleton Museum in Athai hosts the 22nd annual Shackleton Autumn School with three days of lectures, films and exhibitions. There are many speakers, including Menson Bound, who led the expedition which found the endurance at the bottom of the Antarctic Ocean this year. Ernest Shackleton was a major influence on explorer Roland Amundsen, who reached the South Pole in 1911, the first expedition to do it. Geyer Clover is the director of the Amazon Museum in Oslo, called the Fram Museum, and where his ship is housed. Geyer will be one of the main speakers at the Shackleton School in Athai next weekend. I spoke to him earlier today, and he told me about Roland Amundsen. They kind of grew up reading about the stories of the disappearing uh, John Franklin expedition, etc., and they really wanted to be a polar explorer, you know, so he's probably the only one in polar history that decided as a child that he wanted to be a, a polar explorer. So he's, he's, by that, he's probably the only professional polar explorers in the world, because many of the others, like Scott and Shackleton, uh, Douglas Mawson, etc., they became polar explorers as part of another job like the name, and they applied to get there later in life. But Amundsen decided very early on, and he, he kind of prepared himself, uh, you know, by training rigorously, getting in physical shape, uh, sleeping with open window to get hardened himself and get used to the cold, etc. But he was a family of sailors and ship owners, and he's, he was the youngest of four brothers. So kind of his mother decided for him that he should not be involved in that family business. He should study to be a medical doctor. And he started that. So he, he did years at the medical study, study at the University of Oslo. And then his mother died. And then he basically threw away the books and uh, went into getting his master's license, etc. And he went north with sealing vessels and uh, served as regular crew members for sealing expeditions. And in 1896, he was hired as a crew member for the Belgian Antarctic expedition. Became the first expedition to winter in Antarctica. Through that time, he gained incredible experience of how to live on the ice, how to live in extremely low temperatures. Yeah, and also experienced poor leadership and poor planning and poor equipment, which basically were risking the life of every man on board, the poor planning. He didn't tell anybody that he was going to the South Pole until he got as far as where, the Canaries? No, he, uh, the, the Fram was owned by the Russian government and he got permission to use it. But you're absolutely right. It was a North Pole expedition. But during the final preparation of the North Pole expedition, there's messages ticking in that two Americans at different times have been at the North Pole. And nobody wanted to sponsor the third expedition to the North Pole. Nobody wanted to buy the book. Nobody wanted to buy the lecture. And lectures at that time was where the big money was when they toured, toured the world. 
So he didn't tell uh, very many. He told the captain, he told first and second mate, he, he told the scientists he worked on. And when they came to Madeira on 9th of September 1910, he called every man on board and uh, he asked, you know, we're going still to the North Pole, but via the South Pole. And every every man agreed. They got the offer to go home, but everyone agreed to go along. Now, it's painted always and has been uh, through the last hundred years that he was in competition with Scott to get to the yeah. South Pole first. But before he actually left Madeira, he sent a telegram to Scott. Yes. Beg leave to inform you, proceeding Antarctic. Do we know what Scott's reaction to that was? There were other crew members that uh, saw the telegram and, and gave it to Scott. But of course, uh, you know, I don't have any direct quotes from that, but uh, it was definitely not positive. But we have to keep in mind, but at the same time, a German and a Japanese expedition was also heading to Antarctica, and that was so known. And I don't think Scott or Amundsen could know what their intentions were. When Amundsen arrived uh, in the Antarctic, he decided to go a different route to Scott, a, a kind of an unexplored mm. route, and one that mm. uh, Scott, he was following Shackleton's earlier route. Mm. He knew from earlier expeditions, like the Bay of Wales, uh, Borkrivink had been there, Scott had been there on the Discovery Expedition, and Shackleton had been in, the, in that area, and they report about quite a large amount of wildlife, seals, whales, etc. And one of Amundsen's experience from the Arctic is that you need fresh meat, you know, to avoid scurvy and be in good condition. So he, he, he choose to go there. First of all, it's one degree closer to the South Pole. And second of all, there was an abundance of wildlife. And the first thing they did when they got there was to hundreds of seals and, and uh, prepare them for food. When Before he started out, he did supply drops along the way. Yeah, so he put out three depots on 80, 81 and 82 degrees the, the autumn before the attempt to go to the South Pole with tons of equipment, fresh seal meat, paraffin, which was one of the most important lessons. Um, that there was plenty of, of food along the way. And every degree, uh, when they actually went to the South Pole, they dropped off large amounts from their sledges to have for their return journey. So the, the sledges got lighter and lighter as you closer to the South Pole they go. How far was that journey? How long did it take him? It was 99 days return. Well, he had a very strict regime that whatever weather, whatever conditions, they were going 20, uh, what you call it, sea miles. So even if there was great weather, they did the distance in four or five hours, they stopped. Uh, even if they had, you know, 19 hours left of the day, they still stopped because they, he knew they needed rest. And some of the men, come on, let's go, let's do another leg, you know. Uh, but the dogs needed rest, the men needed rest. So. It was kind of an exercise. They got more and more fit for every day. The dogs got more and more fit. They had plenty of food, so they had rest. They got recovery. And every third day, after three days, they did a full day of rest by eating and working on the equipment. So they, 
Yeah, no, a long, long, long uh, ski journey without much events, except when they passed uh, what they call the devil's dance floor, where there are lots of crevices, and so they had to be very careful for not falling in. When did he reach the pole? What date? 14th of December, uh, 1911. He was the very first man to reach there. What? Did they hold a celebration, a ceremony when they got there? Yeah, they, well, first of all, during the expedition, they were nervous if the British would be there first. But when they got uh, a degree, like 88, 89 degrees, they were pretty sure that uh, they will be the first. And uh, one of the crew members writes in his story the day before they get to the pole that uh, we can hear the earth axis grinding and you know and tomorrow we will oil it so it's uh, they were pretty confident and all the men they put the Norwegian flag in uh, in the ice and they celebrated with cigars and they left a message for Scott they did indeed leave a message for Scott you were speaking at the Shackleton Museum next weekend uh, by yeah. way of of their annual convention there. Yeah. Amazon was inspired by Shackleton. Did they ever meet or correspond? They met several times and had great respect for each other. Shackleton was present during Amundsen's lectures, South Pole lectures in America. And Robert Perry, uh, you know, that's the one that claimed to be at the North Pole. So the three of them, three polar heroes had several events and dinners together. And uh, Amundsen was very appreciative that uh, both Shackleton and Perry was present and was of great support. Unlike the Endurance, the Fram survived and it is now the Fram Museum. You're the director of the museum in Oslo. TripAdvisor says it's the best museum in Norway. It's actually say it's the best attraction in Norway okay. in any category. In there, you you have the ship inside in the museum. You have three D yeah. experiences, but you can actually board the ship and look around. Yeah, you can go through and uh, it smells diesel in the engine room. Your pancakes in the galley. Um, you can hear the ship rumble and it feels like you're at sea. And we have this three hundred degree uh, film and the ship so you can feel that you're in the ice and going through the Antarctica so it's it's become very popular yeah what would you be saying at the Shackleton event next weekend I'm talking about the legacy of Amundsen how he was perceived at the time maybe telling stories that since it's 150 years since his birth this year but also look at how he's perceived today in Norway and in and I think his stature in Norway is less than in the rest of the world because it's so popular now to write biographies and make films showing more of his darker side than his achievements. It seems to be the way where no profit is accepted in his homeland. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's sad because his achievements, the way he lived and learned from nature and uh, the Aboriginal people, of the north, you know, and he was an extremely modern leader. You know, he used 1980s management techniques already in 1910s. I think it's an inspiration for many people, especially now where we know that the climate change and uh, respect for nature is more important than ever. And I think he was a shining star in those matters 100 years ago.
Kyle Clover speaking to me earlier today from Norway. And the Shackleton Autumn School runs from next Friday through to Monday. Information and tickets from shackletonmuseum.com Yesterday, a very large container vessel was towed into Wexford Harbour after suffering engine failure in the Irish Sea. It was another rescue for the harbour, and Waterford Harbour Master Darren Doyle told me what happened. The vessel was basically um, departed the port of Dublin, bound for Rotterdam, and she encountered engine problems off the coast of uh, Rosslear um, Thursday afternoon. So the owners of the of the uh, container vessel CT Rotterdam acted very swiftly and dispatched a tug uh, to the scene and they established a tow on, on the vessel. The vessel then obviously was towed to the Port of Warford's uh, Bellevue Port facility where we have a container terminal in operation. So we were very happy to be able to offer assistance uh, to the vessel and, and, and thus preventing a potentially higher risk incident was also minimising disruption to the shipping uh, supply chain. How big is the Rotterdam? vessel is 140 metres length overall. Uh, it's as big as we see in Dublin Port? It is indeed, yes, yeah. yeah. The vessel uh, operates uh, to and from Dublin Port from the ports of Rotterdam, I, I believe. It's a significant amount of containers on board. How difficult is it vessel. to take something like that in tow? Uh, obviously, conditions on, on scene were, were quite challenging. Uh, so the crew of the Ocean Challenger, uh, the the, tow, the vessel engaged the tow. The vessel, you know, performed excellently, very professionally on scene, and carried out an excellent tow into the port of Waterford. We've spoken before on seascapes about rescues undertaken by Waterford Port. How often are you called out with your tugs? Uh, well, that vessel is actually owned by Atlantic Towage, uh, owned and operated by Sean Harrington uh, from uh, West Cork very important part of the rescue uh, uh, response that we have in, in Ireland. Tell me something about the border for port. How many ships do you take there a week, a month, a year? In, in the port of Waterford, we, we handle approximately 700 ships uh, per annum, uh, ranging from bulk carriers to container vessels and cruise ships. We handle 32 cruise ships here in the port of Waterford facility at Bellevue Port, uh, Waterford City uh, Keys, and also uh, at Dummer East, uh, at Anchor off Dummer East. It's a very busy port. A significant and operation. Absolutely, and, and we believe it, the uh, the incident underlines the importance of the Port of Warfare's facilities from a national strategic perspective. Particularly, yes, yeah, with the offshore renewables and onshore renewables, uh, we're, we're certainly engaging quite a significant amount of energy and time with uh, stakeholders on that. Because those people building those facilities will be looking for onshore facilities to assemble these units to tow them out to where they're going. Yeah, that's correct. And we, but we also uh, are, are really engaged in the onshore uh, wind farms as well. We've been doing that for many years now. Uh, uh, I suppose we are go unnoticed quite a lot, but we 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 service um, the majority of the states. Uh, we have a service wind farms as far as northwest of Ireland. East and west of the state as well. Darren Doyle of Waterford Harbour. Get Hooked was the title of an event held by Inland Fisheries Ireland on Mayo's Loch Moher recently to introduce women to angling. It was the very last day of the fly fishing season, and IFI Education and Outreach Officer Lorraine O'Donnell organised the event with Deirdre Donnelly of Mayo Sports Partnership. In spite of some inclement weather, 
eight women turned up and were introduced to the art of fly fishing and taken out on the lake by Gillies Eamon McLaughlin and Declan Gibbons. Lorna Siggins joined Eamon's crew of Gillian Judy and Noelle Staunton on the water for seascapes. She first spoke to Gillian about what attracted her to the event. The weather didn't put you off then? No, I was debating this morning. I was going, oh, I stay in bed or get up? <laughs> and then I said I'd be disappointed if I didn't yeah. go. So do you have far to come? No, I'm Westport. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So what was the appeal of this now for you? Just, just love fishing and I did it years ago with my dad. Oh, did but you? But I didn't know this was fly fishing and I've always wanted to try the fly fishing. Oh. It's, it looks so elegant yeah. and everything. It's different, it's totally different now than normal. Do you know, you're doing your reel and everything yeah. now. So, yeah, it's... So what you tried before was coarse? Yeah, just normal, yeah. By yeah. Um, the harbour or down by a pier or mackerel fishing or whatever, or oh, scuba right. dive and things like that. Yeah. Not, not this fella. It's yeah. been years since I did it, so when I saw it, I said, now, you see, before it gets booked out. Brilliant. Yeah, it's lovely. Especially when it's somewhere, like you could be driving by here a million times, you wouldn't even know the lake was here. So maybe Gillian, can you explain to me what you're doing there? <laughs> <laughs> see, there's two different lines. Yes. So the end of it is the one that you, you leave out into the water all the time. Oh, right, that's use the this. monofilament. Yeah. Okay. And then you use the, see, this is kind of thicker. It's like, right. so this is the one you nearly don't use this, the reel at all. Use the reel. Yeah, because okay. it's like this. And they said to hold it like a golf club. Okay, so you've already been given this instruction. Inside on, on, the, the, shore. on the mainland. Yeah, <laughs> on the mainland. <laughs> and then like this, so you have to make sure it comes out, gets caught. Because the wind is so hard high now it's going to keep pulling out see there right. that's your fly that's my fly and the fly they said for wet fishing or dry fishing so if you want the hook to go underneath the water or if you want it to stay on the surface right and that depends on lake or river or what type of fish you're getting they have boxes and boxes of different flies and then they make them for whatever area you're into okay. so they'd know this would be trout. This is a stocked lake, so the inland fisheries put in fish. Right. So you have more of a chance of getting something. Whereas if you were down in this or near Kong, you wouldn't get anything this time of the year. And then a lot of them are closed at certain times of the year. It's hard to get going, but once you get it out and get going, it seems to be easier. We were practicing back there with hula hoops to try and get it into the hula hoop. Oh, <laughs> And I caught a tree. <laughs> I'm Lorraine O'Donnell and I'm the Education and Outreach Officer with Inland Fisheries Ireland. There are not many women doing this and why is it? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm asking them all the time. A common theme is that women want to fish with other women. They find angling as a male-dominated sport. So the fact that this was a women's event seemed to attract them. The fact that it was a two-hour session attracted them, that they just had to show up and everything was here. We had our two experts, um, Gillies, and we had all the gear, so they didn't have to invest anything, only their time. And the fact that it was two hours seemed to suit. It wasn't a long day, and they all came from local areas as well. So it was on in a fishery local to them as well here in Moher Lake. And it isn't expensive? 
No, fishing isn't expensive. It depends at like every sport. You can go in at entry level and get beginner set of gear and fishing rod and tackle. When you're fishing for trout in most places, it's free unless a permit applies. And um, so here, the only cost would have been to hire the boats because they wanted to fish on the lake. But you could easily fish um, around the shore in other lakes for free as well. So you wouldn't have any cost at all. Yeah. And is this the first of these events or have you organised events like this before? Well, it's the first with Mayo Sports Partnership. So we have been doing them for a number of years and, you know, small. We can we would love to do more. Um, and the key to these being successful would be through community groups such as angling clubs, because we haven't the resources to do it on the scale we'd like to do it. So we're appealing to people to make themselves known that are interested in helping out from the point of view of coaches and instructors. And that will help us expand it and continue it on. And like the women here now are planning to meet themselves to practice on the grass, which is fantastic because they don't need any input from anybody, only themselves to get together. So that's what we're trying to do. You know, be the catalyst, I suppose, to spark something and the try fishing model seems to do that it gets groups to get together and try it themselves and we've other had other groups with youth groups and they've they've invested and bought fishing tackle for the groups so they've done some fishing with us and then they go off at themselves and practice and get better and send us some photos <laughs> so the other boat has just caught a fish now we know there's fish in there now yeah we do because we've seen one What makes a good angler? Practice. Practice. Patience. <laughs> Patience. Yeah. Fly fishing is is probably one of the nicest types of fishing because it's the skill of the actual fishing. Plus, you can tie your own flies. You know, there's single-handed rods, double-handed rods. The whole kind of um, there's a lot in it. You know, it's yeah. almost like an art form, I'd say. Yeah. It's great to see these people are kind of giving it a go. It's one of these things that um, it's really enjoyable once you kind of get into it. Um, and I, like they did really well today for, for such kind of the conditions and for being the first time for a lot of them. Because that was quite a wind out there, but as you said, some wind is good. Yeah, I think you need a bit of, a bit of life on the lake, as they would say. Yeah, it's good for fishing, and it's good for the kind of fishing we were doing today, you know. The boat was doing all the work for us, um, and we're allowing to work with the wind, you know. And I think it, it kind of it made the casting for the ladies a bit difficult, but for a more experienced person, it would be kind of maybe more easier fishing. So Loch Moherd is operated by Inland Fisheries Ireland uh, and uh, it's in the Balnakil district. So the inspector here, yeah, they stock it. And the reason it's stocked then is kind of like an amenity for the people of kind of uh, South Mayo here. Um, they can use it. So, so there is native brown trout in the lake, but it's also stocked as well. So how did you find that, Noel? I loved it. Yeah. So, yeah, I used to do a little bit of fishing. It was very harmless years ago. Yeah. And I'd signed up for something like this similar before COVID and it didn't happen so I'm delighted that we got the experience of it today and uh, it's lovely. So do you think you'll come back? I'd love to come back yeah. if it came up again yeah. yeah. Deirdre Donnelly and I'm the Community Sports Development Officer with Mayo Sports Partnership. Yeah it just shows like women just want something different it's predominantly male, male sport you know, I was chatting to Lorraine there in terms of the percentage of ladies that actually are into fishing or angling. 
she said possibly two percent you know it's very very low very male dominated so maybe now this will start to change things a bit turn the tides excuse the pun so yeah that's that's and, and our remit in sports partnership as i say would be getting getting women involved in some of these different not your traditional sports you know trying to give them opportunities to try something new just bridging the gap there between the male dominated sports and the females so yeah so the gillies we had today were um, Declan Gibbons and Amy McLaughlin who are both staff here in IFI in the West and if anyone wants more information um, maybe ask their local angling club would they run something similar for them say they're interested in joining because angling clubs do want to get more members so maybe make themselves known as local as possible before they contact us and try and get something going locally. That was Inland Fisheries Education and Outreach Officer Lorraine O'Donnell and before that Deirdre Donnell of Mayo Sports Partnership, IFI Gilly Eamon McLaughlin and Get Hooked participants speaking to Lorna Siggins in Mayo. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme's podcast is on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. And Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.